Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Jonathan McGarrion, a host on New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today, we'll be talking to Benjamin Hopkins about his new book, Ruling the Savage Periphery, Frontier Governance and the Making of the Modern State, published this year, 2020, by Harvard University Press. Welcome to the show, Ben Hopkins. Yeah. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks so much for having me today. Uh, it's a pleasure to be able to talk to you and hopefully uh, with your listeners a little bit more interactively. Um, I'm an associate professor of history and international affairs at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C. And uh, I was trained as a South Asianist um, at Cambridge University and have focused most of my academic writings and research on Afghanistan and state formation in South Asia during the 19th century. Fantastic. Okay. So how did you come to um, writing this project? Uh, the book is called Ruling the Savage Periphery. Uh, so I'm just curious how um, your past work and experiences and interests evolved into uh, this project. So as a historian of, of Afghanistan, I've always been um, somebody on the proverbial periphery. Um, you know, when, when you talk to most scholars who identify themselves as South Asianists, what they are really talking about is they do Bengal or they do Tamil Nadu, um, possibly maybe uh, uh, the North Indian Plain, but, but that's actually a pretty narrow kind of rendering of it. Um, and working on such a peripheral space has really made me think more broadly um, about how this space maybe resonates with with other places. Um, so that's kind of the first point is that working on on Afghanistan, which is uh, just this forgotten periphery in so many ways, despite the fact the United States is entering its 20th year of war there, uh, it, it really makes you engage with a much broader uh, uh, intellectual remit, as it were. Um, the other thing, is that uh, especially as I was doing my first couple of projects, um, I mean, my first book, The Making of Modern Afghanistan, is about state formation in Afghanistan. And then I co-authored some books with Magnus Marston about the Afghan uh, Indian frontier, which is today the Afghan um, Pakistani frontier. And I just always remember being struck at how this resonated, um, at least in my mind, with other parts of the world. Um, and so this project, uh, Ruling the Savage Periphery, was really born out of that, um, both out of a need to kind of be more expansive as a historian, um, but also out of an interest in thinking, well, I think the things I'm seeing here are resonant elsewhere. So let's take that as a serious issue and kind of explore that. And that's what the book uh, attempts to do. Yeah, absolutely. That really comes through. I mean, a central part of the book definitely seems to be how you can apply this model to really a wide range, both spatially and temporally. Um, 
So yeah, to dive in, um, I would kind of say, and, and tell me how you think about this, the thesis of your book seems to be that we can understand the history and legacy of these various spaces that you cover through the lens of what you're calling frontier governmentality, which is um, the, the operative framework that you fashioned to do your analysis of the um, spaces in this book. Uh, and it seems to me, at least in my reading, right, that frontier governmentality is sort of your response to the ways in which we can intuitively tell that these spaces resemble frontiers. But when you look hard at them, our sort of stereotypes or uh, first guesses of what a frontier uh, is really crumble and dissolve. And, and frontier governmentality is a, is a way to resolve some of those ambiguities and tensions. Yeah, I mean, the book tries to do a, a couple of things. I mean, in the first instance, it does really focus on these spaces at the limit of state power. Um, you know, we call them borders or boundaries or kind of classically frontiers. Um, and, and so it takes this category, which is usually rendered as place. And the more I examined this and thought about this in the context of, of British India and what became the Afghan state in the late 19th century, um, it, the less I thought about it as place and the more I thought about it as practice, because after all, frontiers are produced, right? The, despite the, the language of Curzon in the Romance lang, uh, uh, lectures, uh, you know, the, the idea of a natural frontier, I think most of us would, would find problematic. So frontiers are produced. And what is it that produces them? Well, practice or practices. And that's where I get to this idea of frontier governmentality. I mean, in, in South Asian studies, there's long been an engagement with the Foucauldian idea of governmentality and how the state operates and stuff. And with this um, frontier governmentality, what I try and do is identify a discrete set of practices which are unique in their totality. It's not the individual parts don't appear elsewhere in the colonial or indeed the non-colonial world. It's that the constellation together in the way they, they're deployed on the frontier is unique to these frontier uh, spaces, as it were. And so I wanted to, on the one hand, offer you know, a robust theoretical framing to, to this space produced by practice. Um, and then I wanted to take that that theoretical framing, uh, the frontier governmentality, and apply it um, to places around the world, uh, which I started with the British Indian frontier of Afghanistan. And then, as I'm sure we'll talk about, it really ranges uh, a global history um, going to you know, Africa, uh, the Americas, uh, throughout Asia, um, and, and really resonates uh, throughout, throughout the globe. Yeah, and I think um, one thing we, we definitely want to emphasize and that you emphasize in the book, right, is as you just said, these are emphatically not sort of places. They're not geographical places. They, they have that um, as a concomitant to them, but they're fundamentally what you call ideational spaces. Yeah, I mean, place plays a role in it, that these ideational spaces or these practices are manifest in specific places. British Indian frontier with Afghanistan, or I talk about the, uh, the Basra Vilayat in, um, in Iraq, or the Somali-Kenyan frontier, or the U.S.-Mexican border uh, with the San Carlos Apache. 
Um, so definitely, I don't want to uh, dismiss space, but I, I, I was thinking about um, this idea that on the one hand, you know, we assume frontiers have a certain fixity to them. Um, and yet on the other, we know the historical reality is that frontiers actually move all the time. So how do we explain this seeming contradiction or at the very least paradox of the fixity on the one hand and the fact that that frontiers move? And I think the way I try and answer that is with this idea of of the practices and also thinking of them less as spaces or less as places, but more as spaces where these practices are manifest in a specific place. Right. And um one one key way that you sort of discuss the problem of spatiality, uh, if you will, is through the model of encapsulation. More than borders or boundaries, uh, the spatial process that takes place in a lot of these stories is one of encapsulation, both physically and um, conceptually, uh, if, in my reading, at least. Yeah, I, I mean, to, to get perhaps beyond the, the abstract theoretical framing, the, the kind of problem that I saw on the British Indian frontier and then saw repeated elsewhere is um, estates expanding imperial and national states in the late 19th century come up to these liminal peripheries that are inhabited by problematic peoples, problematic in the eyes of the state because they tend to be resisted. Um, you know, how do states deal with them? Um, and beginning with the British frontier in Afghanistan, what the British do is they actually set up these spaces that they call tribal agencies. And I remember when I first encountered these, and these agencies still exist, though they are supposedly being disassembled by the Pakistani state today. Um, I remember looking at these tribal agencies uh, and thinking, wow, these look an awful lot like Native American reservations in the United States. And so I started to think, well, you know, what, what is it about these places? What, what, what is uh, similar about them? And one of the really defining features is that, you know, for lack of a better term, what do they do? They, they kind of run up a fence around these problematic peoples and um, try and contain them and the problems that they bring within these spaces. So they try and encapsulate them, not only physically, but also through uh, an administrative architecture and through certain practices that, that the book talks about. Right, exactly. Um, and, and, and you definitely convey that with, uh, with, with, with conceptual clarity and, and also with quite a bit of detail and examples. And before we dive into those, uh, I think one thing that's really helpful is you lay out really clearly the sort of taxonomy of frontier governmentality and you kind of sketch it out into four constitutive elements. Um, and so I'm wondering if you could just kind of summarize those uh, uh, for the listeners. Yeah. Um, I mean, as I said, I, I, I conceptualize the frontiers as practices rather than places. And so what are the, the, the elements that, that mark this practice? And as you point out, I, I've got uh, four practices. Um, the first is... Uh, indirect rule, which I think is, you know, pretty standard in the playbook of most empires, uh, ruling through local chiefs or headmen's really at, at, at arm's length removal. 
Um, the second I call sovereign pluralism, it might be suzerainty. Um, you know, in the American context, we might call it federalism, but it's a kind of layered sovereignty uh, rather than the absolutist version of sovereignty that is so prevalent in discourse today. Um, the third is um, what I call imperial objecthood, that uh, the people subject to this frontier governmentality are almost always excluded, uh, not just from the political, but also from the legal sphere. And we can talk about that in, in detail with some of the examples, but they are essentially rendered non-persons in the eye of, eyes of the law. So they, they um, are objects of state action rather than subjects. Um, and then finally, economic dependence, that in all of these cases, um, the people inhabiting these spaces are made uh, dependent on the larger surrounding economy. And that dependence is, of course, in an exploitive and subservient manner that really is to the detriment of those. So it's these four elements together, um, indirect rule, sovereign pluralism, uh, in, uh, imperial objecthood, and economic dependence, that when you find them operating together, this is a frontier. And it's constituted by the way it's governed, this frontier governmentality. Right. And and I think um, those four pieces really come through quite clearly. And, and each one of them is, is really interesting. I think um, maybe first, though, we can start with the economic dependency. Um, and it's really interesting, right, because I think it speaks to one of the, you know, one of one of the the rhetorical moves that people today who want to denigrate uh, the the successors to these to these places and and sort of you know talk down the extent to which we can blame the historical legacy of frontier governmentality for the problems there today and and you'll hear people say. Well, you know, if you say that capitalism and colonialism has left them poor, you know, before capitalism and colonialism, they were nomads who were even poorer. So how can you blame capitalism and colonialism? And at least I read it uh, as I read it in the book. What you show is that actually any benefits that might come from capitalism were withheld from these people uh, intentionally, and they were sort of sunk into this insidious in-between form of um, economics. Yeah, well, I think many of the places that I examine, um, we have to, to recognize that many of them, before the expansion of global capitalism, especially in the form of imperialism by European powers, though not exclusively, um, many of these places uh, were formally central to regional economies. Afghanistan is a great example, right? Um, it's only with the ascendance of the British East India Company at the beginning of the 19th century on the North Indian plain that Afghanistan's uh, political economy really collapses. And then it, it becomes this kind of anarchical space as far as the British and basically everybody is concerned up to today. So point number one is that, uh, you know, in rendering these places as frontiers, part of that process is um, breaking the previous role that they had in, in regional economies. 
Um, and then secondly, at a perhaps a more individual level, looking at the inhabitants of these spaces. I mean, what I argue in the book is that the way these spaces are ruled and governed under this frontier governmentality is it's really to tie these people, or rather their, their labor, into um, exploitive patterns of, of wage labor um, and exploitive patterns of economic dependency, right? So that it's a systematic and structural move that's going on. Uh, the after effects continue to affect many of these places today. So, you know, you, you have spaces like the, the British Indian frontier or what is today the frontier between uh, Afghanistan and Pakistan or the, the Somali Kenyan frontier, spaces that had previously been really important in local economies up through the 19th century. Imperialism comes in, ruptures that, and then in the midst of the consequent political uh, disorder, um, the colonial states or the state regimes, as we see in, in the United States and Argentina, then try and bind these people into um, uh, a labor of violence, as it were, as I detail in the book, where, where often the, the labor that, that they are offered within the colonial sphere is as police or as militia or as soldiers. And it's to tie them both economically to the colonial regime, but also uh, uh, um, politically to being exploited by that regime. Right. And, and those are, those are the two sort of, um, you know, subdivisions that you put into economic dependency, right? One is the um, sort of dragooning of certain members of the tribes into forms of colonial militia. And the other is the um, fostering of migratory wage labor. And one of the things that was really interesting, and I, I thought very compelling was the sort of way in which this injects sort of capitalist relationships into individual uh, transactions, both social and economic within these spaces. But at the same time, because they're not, you know, they're intentionally withheld from full integration, the cash economy, it's, it's, it's not sufficient for them. So it creates all of these deficits that they have to fill through various practices that wind up being pretty deleterious to them. Um, and maybe you can talk about that. You can agree, disagree, but uh, use the, con uh, the context of the Apache reservations, because I feel like you lay out this, this form of insidious economic dependency really well in that section. Yeah. I, I mean, um, that's exactly right. Uh, as one of my colleagues characterize it, that the strategy here for the, for the colonial state, and in that, with regard to the Apache, I'm talking about the American state, is that you uh, monitor these indigenous peoples by getting them to police themselves, recruiting men into uh, tribal police, for instance. And at the same time, you monetize them. So you pay them for that labor. And so you get a kind of twofer, as it were, in that you get an economy of violence where indigenous people are are responsible for their own self-policing. Um, yeah, I mean, I think that the San Carlos Apache Reservation, which is in Southeast Arizona, uh, really epitomizes this. Um, this system of frontier governmentality, I argue, is really set up there in the uh, mid-1870s by a man named um, uh, Klump, uh, John Philip Klump. 
And one of the key elements he does is create a tribal police force. Now, there had been antecedents in the U.S. to this. There had been some up on the uh, on the Navajo reservation and I believe up on the um, in an Oregon reservation. But Clum's is the experiment that ends up actually sticking because it's after Clum puts this in uh, process on the San Carlos reservation that in the 1880s, Congress actually passes a law for tribal police. Um, and what he does is he basically recruits the kind of holders of authority from amongst the various uh, Apache tribes who were sequestered on this reservation. And he makes them uh, police the other uh, indigenous inhabitants of this space, and he pays them for it. But of course, he doesn't pay them enough. He pays them, I think, uh, at the beginning, $8, and then it goes up to $15. But that $15 is, of course, insufficient to cover their needs because these people had previously you know, not been part of the wage economy and they'd uh, been, uh, uh, depending on which group you're talking about on the San Carlos reservation, uh, kind of semi-nomadic. But of course, that is closed off uh, with the reservation settlement and the surrounding areas that they'd used for hunting, for example, or, or um, for other activities are no longer accessible to them. So they're forced into this wage relationship with Clum where they're paid as uh, tribal policemen. But it's not just uh, themselves that they have to support. They obviously have to support you know, their families and their broader social networks. And of course, that is insufficient to, um, to support that. And I think that's wholly intentional by Clum and other colonial officials because it then forces the non-police uh, uh, um, members of the family to, to seek out other means of garnering wages. So on the, on the, on the San Carlos reservation, what you see is, is a lot of people going off the reservation to uh, you know, try and hire themselves out as local laborers and stuff. And that practice is repeated not only on San Carlos, but it's repeated on the other uh, places that I examine in the book. So on the British Indian frontier with Afghanistan, um, uh, it's um, tribal militias that are recruited uh, and the exact same kind of thing happens there. In Argentina uh, as well, you have these uh, groups called Indios Amigos, uh, or friendly Indians, um, who were recruited to to police the Indios Enemigos, or the enemy Indians. So it's, it's one of the constants of this system of frontier rule, this frontier governmentality. Right. And, and this ties into like, when you hear about this sort of Baroque lumbering hodgepodge construction that they've meant made to deal with these places the the salient question that pops into your mind is sort of like why do this at all why not just conquer these spaces as they've done with so much else within the empire and um, this is one of the things that the book tries to answer yeah um i mean that the the short and sweet answer is that um these places just aren't worth the effort because they tend to be um, places that uh, there's very little return on the investment in the sense that they tend to be ecologically impoverished places uh, that is not going to be productive of the tax revenue that states would need to justify 
conquest and full administration. Um, so given that, I think there's a conscious strategy that states exercise, whether it be the British Indian Raj, uh, the uh, American federal government, um, or the Argentine state, where you know it's encapsulating or corralling these problematic peoples on the poorest land and essentially fencing them in on that and then taking the uh, the worthwhile bits away. So again, to return to San Carlos, that's a really good example because San Carlos is actually an executive Indian agent um, reservation. So it's done by executive order rather than by treaty because it's after the U.S. Uh, Congress has said they're no longer going to do treaties with Native Americans. Um, and what happens because it's an executive agency is as the executive can create that reservation, it can also clip that reservation. So between the time of its creation in, I think, 1872 and the end of the 19th century, the reservation has been reduced no less than five times, especially and most importantly, when copper is discovered at the Morenci mine on the southeast corner of the reservation, which actually uh, is today one of the largest copper mines in the world. Um, the the Morenci mine that used to be uh, part of Phelps Dodge, but I think now is part of Rio Tinto. So certainly states have um, other uh, alternatives for how they treat these people and these uh, spaces. Um, they could conquer them, they could eradicate these people, they could integrate these people, or they could do what they do on these reservations, which is essentially encapsulate them. And I think that to a large extent, it's just a, a purely economic, but when I say economic, I mean the economy of force as well. Economic rendering that it's not worth the effort to go in and either integrate these people or eradicate these people? Why not just put them on crappy land, fence them in, and if they break out, as they inevitably do, you know, push them back, but otherwise leave them to their own devices? Right. And one of the things I found so curious about the way that they're thinking about these spaces is it seems like it's funneled through the, uh, you know, the prism of agriculture. And that just struck me as a little bit funny, right? Because we're talking about the 19th century, the 20th century, and, and this fixation with this land as, you know, whether or not it's viable agriculturally almost seems like the mindset of the, of the feudal mode of production, right? I mean, in the post-industrial revolutionary uh, world, you know, you can do other things with land other than agriculture. So, that was one thing I was curious about is, is why are they so fixated on the ecological or agricultural productivity of these lands? And that itself is a great question. Um, I mean, to go to the British Indian example, uh, up through almost the turn of the 20th century, you know, the, the foundation of the tax base for the British Indian Raj is agricultural receipts. Those are declining through the course of the 19th century, and there's been wonderful economic histories to show that that graph that shows, you know, the uh, revenue from agricultural decreases. But um, the interesting thing is that, you know, the book argues that it's the British Afghan frontier, or at least for the purposes of the British Empire, um, this frontier governmentality really begins in its modern sense. And it's through this thing called the Frontier Crimes Regulation, which is the local law that the British put in place on the frontier. 
And when I was looking at the background of where the Frontier Crimes Regulation, which is first promulgated in 1872, where it comes from, it actually comes from uh, a report about the revenue settlement for this space from the late 1860s, from I think 1868, where essentially the British go up to try and figure out lines of property ownership and and agricultural productivity of of this particular space, and they're absolutely confounded. They just don't understand it. And so um, instead of trying to penetrate and understand it in a meaningful way, or instead of trying to reconstruct it in a different way, they just kind of, um, they, they kind of write it off. And so it's interesting that the bedrock of this kind of frontier governmentality uh, for the British Indian space is definitely uh, in this agricultural kind of mindset, which, as you rightly point out, you, you think states in the late 19th century have other options. And yet in the other spaces that I examine, I mean, it continues to be this agricultural productivity. And I would include within the broader frame of that agricultural productivity, uh, pastoral productivity. Because, for instance, when we look at Argentina, which is, I think, the, the um, last substantive chapter of the book. Um, in Argentina, the so-called conquest uh, of the desert, or when the, the uh, Argentine state conquers the Pampas, um, they understand that they don't actually have enough people to shove into these newly conquered lands to make it productive farmland. But because of technological changes, largely as a consequence of the Industrial Revolution, it becomes extremely productive space for uh, the raising of pastoral products, in particular wool. Um, interestingly, Argentina becomes a, a, a global center of um, wool uh, production from the only from the 1860s onwards, and that's got to do with linkages of global capitalism that are tied with uh, farming techniques or pastoral techniques that are brought to Argentina actually by Welsh settlers in the 1860s, and also linkages between capital and production that, that largely, but not exclusively, go back to Britain. Um, the last thing I would actually say on this point, because you, you use the word ecological, um, one of the, I'm not sure I'd say concerns, but definitely one of the issues that I have uh, speaking to you now and had in the back of my mind in writing this book, is that um, if you look at the specific case studies and the places where these studies take place, I've already said this is on um, marginally productive land. And there is a danger of seeing both the, the physical terrain, but also the, the people that inhabit this physical terrain as being somehow ecologically determined, right? Um, I, I had this wonderful experience in preparing the book of giving papers a number of places. And I gave it uh, one time at the Ethno History Conference, which is largely, uh, you know, a North American focus and North American audience. And I put up a two pictures of two of my, my spots, one, the British Indian frontier in what is today called Baluchistan uh, in modern day Pakistan, and the other, the San Carlos Reservation in Southern Arizona. And I put these pictures up side by side and they look exactly the same. The audience, and in fact, myself had difficulty in disaggregating, you know, which was Baluchistan and which is uh, San Carlos. And I bring that up because it does raise the 
interesting and in some ways uncomfortable question of, well, is this a story not of politics, but of ecology and of ecological determinism? Uh, and and I, I'm wary in, in answering that, but uh, it, it's definitely something that I think is part of the story. Right. And I mean, this ties in perfectly to what I was going to ask you next, because you definitely do a good job of not lapsing into, you know, any kind of like weird ecological determinism. But the uh, the the actors that you're covering absolutely believed in a form of ecological determinism. And and, you know, I work on an earlier period of colonialism and, um, you know, this was so familiar to me. Right. This stretches all the way back to you know, Greco-Roman myths, right? The sort of connection of the character of a, of a peoples to the geography that they inhabit. So it leads me to the question of, of sort of how much of this do you think is a legacy of, this, of the past conceptual baggage that has accrued in imperial thought for hundreds, if not thousands of years? And, and maybe here you could talk both about ecological determinism and also the sort of category of savage and bar, uh, barbarian more generally? You know, that is a fantastic question, Jonathan. Uh, I'll start with a, a little uh, anecdote that, that actually comes out from my previous research, and that is um, the first British ambassador to the court of the Kingdom of Kabul, which is what the state of Afghanistan was called in the early 19th century, was a guy named um, Mount Stuart Ulfenston. Um, and he was a lowland Scottish nobility. He sent up in 1808, 1809 to make a defensive treaty with the ruler of Afghanistan, actually against a Napoleonic invasion of all things, um, which is kind of neither here nor there for our purposes. But one of the really interesting things that comes out of Ulfenston's sojourn to the frontier and to his encounter with the Afghans is he's the first British official to go up there. And so he ends up writing this really important book called An Account of the Kingdom of Kabul that basically defines Afghans and, the, and Afghanistan, even for us today. But when he goes up there, he's got a model. Uh, and it, you can see this in his own writing. He talks about the Afghans or like the Highland Scottish clans, blah, blah, blah. But on this particular point with regard to the frontier and the peoples of the frontier and how they personify the spaces they inhabit, is that in addition to thinking back to his own past in Scotland, he, like any colonial official of the time, is well-read in the classics. He went to uh, the University of Edinburgh, and I've seen his his uh, uh, you know his university records where he sat through lectures by Hume and and Smith, Adam Smith. Um, but the one piece of literature that he has with him when he goes up to the frontier is he has. Tacitus's volume Germania, uh, which is, of course, um, Tacitus's description of how the Roman Empire dealt with the Germanic tribes along the Roman imperial frontier. So definitely there is a tradition, an imperial tradition, as it were, uh, of thinking about how you deal with these savage hordes along the frontier, these barbarians, Um, which gets me to, to... the issue that you bring up about savagery and, and barbarism. And, you know, I, I think it needs to be acknowledged up front that those are very problematic terms. And I know that the uh, the title ruling the savage periphery can be seen as, as, as quite provocative. If you actually read the text, you know, I, I have a long explanation about my use of the term in, in the sense of it being really uh, 
number one, almost always in quotation marks, but number two, to engage with the language of the time. Um, and one of the things that is definitely done by officials, not only government officials, but kind of cultural officials of the 19th century is to talk about the inhabitants of these frontier spaces as savages. Uh, and though savagery and barbarism are related, barbarian and barbarism actually have, as you well know, a, a kind of deeper history going back to antiquity. Um, whereas savagery, and especially the idea of the noble savage, which comes up in the 18th century, is actually kind of a later concept. First in the 18th century, we have this idea of the noble savage. Um, and then as we get into the 19th century, we have the pejorative idea of savage, you know, being both blood, bloodthirsty and uncivilized. Um, one of the things that I found really interesting in researching this book is the um, constancy of the use of this uh, pejorative language against the people that, that inhabit this space. So the middle of the book, as you know, uh, looks at three contemporary thinkers in their own writing um, in the late 19th century that employ these the, this language. The first is a guy named Bartle Freer, who was the commissioner uh, of Sindh, which is in uh, British India, and then goes on to become the high commissioner to uh, the Cape Colony and Natal in uh, South Africa. He leads the disastrous Anglo-Zulu War in 1879-1880. Um, and he uh, publishes a number of letters to the then Prime Minister Gladstone um, that talks about the savagery of these Zulu peoples on along the frontier. And indeed, Gladstone uh, replies with his famous speech, The Rights of the Savage, um, which he gives during his Midlothian election campaign. Um, the second example I then trot out is, of course, the American academic Frederick Jackson Frederick Jackson Turner, who in his thesis on the American frontier, um, talks about uh, the rejuvenative possibilities of the frontier where, um, you know, these, these Western settlers first go out and they're made savages because they lose their civilization, but then they're, uh, as more of them come out, they're actually remade from this kind of uh, savage into a new man, an American. Um, and then finally, looking at Argentina, at uh, an educationalist, but also a president of the Argentine Republic, um, Domingo Sarmiento, who famously wrote uh, in 1852 a, a, a book called uh, Civilization and Barbarism. And there he, he does he, he interchange the uh, language of savagery and, and barbarism. But uh, in all of these instances. These, these men are using the term of savage, savagery, um, uh, barbarism, or lack of civilization to characterize the inhabitants of the frontier, both to delegitimize them you know, and dehumanize them, uh, but also to um, justify their political projects of state building in these spaces. Yeah, it's really extraordinary. Um the way all this plays out. Uh, I think a, a really good anecdote that you give that might help us frame some of the more specifics of this is the uh, speech that Lansdowne gives in Parliament, where 
he's sort of expounding on what exactly their level of independence is. And he, he refers to it as qualified independence. And the whole debate that ensues really demonstrates the extent to which, I mean, they're really just making all of this up and, and even they don't understand it. So could you maybe uh, sketch us out that, that, uh, that scene there? Because it really was extraordinary. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a lovely scene because it encapsulates the larger kind of theoretical argument I was making. I said um, that, you know, the first element of frontier governmentality, well, actually, the second element is this idea of sovereign pluralism. I mean, I teach at a school of international affairs today. And, you know, most political scientists and and just I think the public at large think of sovereignty as an absolute state. You either have it or you don't. Um, and I think we historians have increasingly vocalized the fact that's not true historically. Uh, you know, sovereignty is a many splendid, splendid flower, as it were, and multi-layered. Um, that sovereignty can be split, it can be uh, impartial, it can be total. There's lots of different types of sovereignty. And there's been some fantastic historical work. I mean, the, the person that obviously comes to mind is Lauren Benton's work on this material uh, in the colonial sphere. Um, but this particular issue you bring up with Lansdowne um, illustrates a, a number of things. Now, number one, he's he's speaking to the House of Lords in Parliament, and it's about actually an outbreak of violence on the British Indian frontier. Um, and he's trying to thread the needle here of, on the one hand, saying that we, the British Empire, have the right to intervene here. But on the other hand, we take no responsibility for these people. And um, he does that by referring to the inhabitants of the British Indian frontier as independent tribesmen. And they had long been referred to as that. Now, it might seem semantics, this idea of independence versus uh, sovereignty. But within British India, there's a long tradition of what South Asian uh, historians refer to as paramountcy, namely that the, the British Raj had actually treaty relationships with up to 565 princely states, where essentially it gave those princely states internal autonomy. And so it was long recognized by the British Indian governing authority that sovereignty could be split. And yet there's a, a, a very important um, uh, distinction between sovereignty and independence given by uh, Henry Maine, who was one of the real key legal thinkers of the 19th century British imperial moment, in which while he was the legal member of the Viceroy's Council, Maine offered an opinion where he said, sovereignty is infinitely divisible, right? We can give sovereignty or take it away from princely states without endangering our paramount rule. But independence is not divisible. So with this in mind, you then look at, well, then why, if sovereignty is divisible, but independence is not, do the British consistently for well over 50 years, and actually up until uh, the uh, transfer of power in 1947, why do they always refer to the tribesmen of the Northwest frontier as the independent tribesmen rather than the sovereign tribesmen? They're saying something there that they feel, uh, you know, 
that they're not quite sure about. And Lansdowne in this parliamentary moment gets really tripped up on his own language. And I think it's important to pay attention to that language because all of these entities, whether it be the British Empire, the American Empire, the expanding Argentine state, if there's one thing they all constantly do, they all uh, herald the, the importance of the rule of law to their colonial projects, right? And um, the language of law is important. So it's not just semantics to look at sovereignty and say it's divisible, whereas independence is not. It's actually taking these actors you know, at their own, uh, at, 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 at face value. And I think that's really important. And I just end on this point by saying that that debate about independence and sovereignty that you see on the British Indian uh, frontier, you see repeated in all these other spaces. So for instance, in the United States, you know, Native American reservations to this day are considered independent. It's constitutionally, they are uh, differentiated from both foreign powers and from states. But what that sovereignty means for Native American reservations and for Native Americans themselves is really something that's been, uh, uh, you know, I, I think quite limited and, and subject to, to pretty substantial restraints. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think this is a good segue into sort of talking about the, um, the frontier crimes regulation, which is really the the infrastructure through which all of this weird kind of sovereignty, pseudo-sovereignty, uh, imperial objecthood, uh, the, the, the falsity of the rhetoric of the rule of law is, 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 um, is imported. And this in turn is exported throughout all of the places that you look at. So could you um, give us an overview of what exactly the frontier crimes regulation is? Yeah. So the Frontier Crimes Regulation, as I mentioned, is first uh, promulgated by the Viceroy of India in 1872. And I mean, the basic problem it's trying to solve is how do we rule these independent tribesmen, these trouble pe troublesome people of the frontier, of the periphery? And we're not going to go in and extend uh, normal administration in quotation marks, but rather we're going to rule these people by their own customs and traditions. And I think it's a well accepted fact that, you know, most colonial entities um, rule by some form of uh, uh, divided rule. And it's really in, in the language of some of my colleagues, the rule of difference that the British predicate their rule uh, in India, but also globally on. And I think you can also see that in other colonial uh, settings. So the frontier crimes regulation is supposed to be a particular response to a particular problem. The problem, as I refer to it in the book of the the Pathan. Pathan is the word that the British and others, uh, actually South Asians, use to refer to uh, Afghans. So it's saying, you know, these people have their own kind of culture and their own um, really obscure and difficult to understand ways of relating to each other and ruling each other. It's going to be too expensive for us to go in and basically take over. So instead of doing that, let's, let's, as I said before, encapsulate them physically, but also culturally and say, hey, you're going to be ruled by your own customs and traditions. We as the colonial state ultimately get to say what is authentic and inauthentic uh, customs and traditions, but we're not going to make you subjects of colonial law. You're going to be ruled by your own law. 
And so what the frontier crimes regulation actually does is, number one, it says that those subject to it um, do not have access to colonial courts, because one of the places that um, colonial subjects in British India contested their subjecthood was in the court system. So the British saying, you know, these people are not ready for civilization, um, basically said, you can't go to court at all. Instead, you're going to be ruled over by uh, an indigenous institution called a jirga or a council of elders. And that these uh, this council of elders will apply not some sort of colonial law, but, but local practice and custom. Um, and that the, the agent, or as they're called, the district commissioner, uh, the deputy commissioner, will actually oversee that jirga. Um, there's some other parts to the law that uh, are really interesting and important. Um, the, the idea of collective punishment, right? So that uh, a, a crime which is perpetrated by an individual can be punished uh, collectively. The, the state can take action against uh, these people at, as a whole. Um, and then there's some actually really interesting uh, uh, issues about um gender and gender violence, because there's one crime that is reserved automatically for the colonial courts, and that is actually adultery. And that has, I think, to do, and as I argue in the book, with um, basically denuding or undermining the masculinity of the Afghan men in that. What's really interesting to me is that though the Frontier Crimes Regulation, which, as I say, is first passed in 1872, then passed in 1887, and then repassed in 1901. And the 1901 version is still in effect in Pakistan today, despite the fact this is supposed to be a specific response to the problem of the Pashtun, to, to the cultural particularity of the Afghans. Um, this law gets reproduced throughout the British Empire. So it goes from the northwest frontier of British India to the northeast and is applied along the frontier with Burma. In 1914, it goes actually with the British Indian administrator. This is the other part of the story is the personal connection, because often the law travels with per, uh, people. It goes from British India to uh, southern Iraq and is applied to southern Iraq as the Tribal Civil and Criminal Disputes Regulation, which is on the books actually until the Ba'athist coup in 1958. And then Saddam Hussein, interestingly, kind of re resurrects it in the 1990s. Um, it goes throughout the British mandatory uh, areas of the Middle East, Transjordan, Palestine. Um, it travels with Lord Lugard into Nigeria. Uh, you see resonances of it in the Natal colony, which is in present-day South Africa. And the, the, the last um, direct copying of it, which I saw, and this is a, a lovely story that I love to kind of end on, um, was in Kenya in 1934 as the um, as, as a law applying to the uh, northern frontier. And the Kenya law um, is so great because it, this says something about the way that colonialism worked. Um, I remember finding the law in the archives at Kew, in the National Archives in London, and um, they had the, the Kenyan law printed, but in the back as an addendum, they had the frontier crimes regulation from British India that they were basing it off, off of. And the, the legal member 
um, for the council in Kenya was so lazy that he simply crossed out British India and wrote in red Kenya. And anytime there was reference to Pathan or Baluch, the peoples of British India and, and Afghanistan, he again crossed those out and put Somali, right? So, I mean, it is literally a carbon copy of the law, which gets applied to Kenya uh, in 1934. Yeah, I mean, it's it's clear that it, the document has so much plasticity, which allows it to be sort of infinitely reproduced. Um, and and one of the things that I noticed that it, it also does is it produces the very categories that it seeks to regulate. Um, and, and, and you include one of the most extraordinary things in the book is that the FCR, it, it, it claims to regulate um, or apply to any ethnic group that it covers. And it says that these ethnic groups are defined by this gazette, a sort of ancillary document that goes with it. And then the gazette says that um, an ethnic group is any group that the gazette says is an ethnic group, right? So it's it's sort of constructing these categories for itself. And then the other way uh, that I'd love you to talk about that it sort of constructs categories is that it, it claims to rule through tribal customs. But what makes it so insidious is that it it's actually either inventing or manipulating these customs that it, it claims that it is respecting. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's exactly spot on. Um, so like a, a good example about these tribal customs from the law itself is the use of, of the jirga or the so-called council of elders which as far as British frontier administrators are concerned, is something that's intrinsic to all Pathan, indeed to all inhabitants of the frontier. And so actually one of the key architects uh, who applies this law, a guy named Robert Sandeman, who cuts his teeth in the northern part of the British Indian frontier, where he is amongst Pashtun, who do have a, a tradition of the Jirga. When he goes to the southern bit of the border, where there is a different group called the Baluch, he replicates the jirgas amongst the Baluch, even though there's no pre-existent um, tradition of that amongst the Baluch, right? So he brings this tradition with him and says it's tradition, even though uh, the Baluch are like, wait a minute, what, what's going on here? You know, and that that's the formal institutional replication, but substantively we see the same things of, of the, uh, the, the uh, colonial state uh, creating crimes that are, as far as it's concerned, traditional, um, which really have no 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 substance in local lived experience, um, you know. And the the, the other thing uh, that comes up, as you rightly point out, is both the self-referential definition of these categories of ethnicity, but the plasticity of it as well. So one of the lovely things that happens um, is that there are very few, because as I said earlier, the frontier crimes regulation intentionally excludes people from the legal sphere. So it's very difficult to get into a colonial court. But there are a couple of cases. Um, you get into the colonial court under the frontier crimes regulation or its various global replications around the world, either through, as I said earlier, the issue of adultery or through what the British call a blood feud. This is always about how these you know, savage barbarians um, have a proclivity to violence that needs to be conserved or, or limited by the colonial state. So a blood feud gets you into court. 
And there's this one lovely case from British India, where it's actually two Hindu merchants living in, uh, I think, Daragazi Khan, which is one of the cities in today, Pakistan. So they're, they're Hindu, they're urban dwellers. They're not the tribesmen that these uh, laws were originally uh, supposed to apply to. And yet, um, as they're having a fight over property, uh, one of them declares a blood feud and in doing so is able to gain access to a colonial court. And the entire issue that comes up in the colonial court is one of, well, wait a minute, does this law even apply to these people because they're Hindu, they're urban dwellers, they're not Pashtuns? And basically where the colonial court comes down is that, um, well, they have been, uh, the, the, the word the colonial court uses, patronized or, or rendered into Afghans through long exposure to practice along the frontier, which then just totally uh, undermines the stability of colonial categories of belonging, because essentially the court is saying this is learned and practiced behavior rather than innate ethnic uh, identity. And, you know, the entire architecture of exclusion and of the rule of difference is premised on the innateness of identity and the inability to to transgress those bounds. Um, you know, you see this as well, for instance, in the United States in terms of the way that that Native Americans are legally treated. Um, I mean, it's really interesting. It's not until Standing Bear v. Crook in the 1870s that Native Americans even are what we call justiciable in a court of law. They have no person. And that 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 um, a uh, case of Crook v. Standing Bear is really interesting because basically uh, this uh, Native American chief is is held and he puts in a writ of habeas corpus, which is, of course, in the Constitution. And up until that point, American jurisprudence says, well, this doesn't apply to you because you're not a person in the eyes of the law. Um, and so it, it really does get to this issue about uh, how the colonial state uses the legal rigmarole to uh, police identity and police access to avenues of power and relief. Yeah, and and so much of this policing is done through um, the use of, of what you might call tribal elites or native elites um, that can do a lot of the enforcing for them. So I have two questions about that um, based on what you cover in the book. One is how does it get buy-in from these groups? And then more generally, um, I feel like these are such a tricky group of people for historians to talk about, right? Because on the one hand, they're violent, they're victims of colonial violence, but simultaneously they're perpetrators of colonial violence. So how does it get buy-in from them? And also, how should we think about them as historians? Yeah, that is a fantastic question. It brings me up to where the limits of my own abilities as a historian and the limits of this project are. Um, to be clear, this is a um, book about the state and how the state treats indigenous people rather than a book about indigenous people's resistance, flight, accommodation of the state. Um, that history needs to be written. And hopefully, you know, some of your listeners are, are working on that or will work on that because it's one that desperately needs to be written. Um, and there is, and I say this in the introduction, there is a way you could um, criticize the work as silencing the voices 
of indigenous people by privileging the voice of the state. And I recognize that. I recognize that in using the language of savagery and why it's problematic. Um, and, and so it's not that I want to dodge that. It's, it's saying, hey, this is what my work does. It really looks at the state and the way the state acts. And I don't want to presuppose that I can answer in a real thorough or meaningful way precisely your question. That's for uh, historians that I think have a different toolkit and, and, and can do that. That said, I mean, I, I think that structurally what we have to recognize is that um, any regime of rule, colonial or otherwise, has with it, you know, the opportunities for both winners and losers. Um, now, the conditions of those opportunities can come about because of force, namely you, you force people to do this violently, or it can come about by bureaucratic structuring of opportunity. So thinking about, for instance, the tribesmen um, along the Afghan frontier, you know, certainly there are instances um, where they see the way that the British are going to govern them, and they see advantages that they can take out of that system of governance. So a classic one that they, they do um, on the other side of the border, on the Afghan side of the border, is um, basically demanding subsidy payments in order to keep the peace, right? And of course, those subsidy payments are not evenly distributed amongst the, the members of these groups, but rather are concentrated in the hands of the holders of authority. So we have to recognize that within these indigenous groupings, um, there is a hierarchy of authority that is, you know, different between the Afghans and the Apaches and, and such. Um, the other thing that we need to recognize is that, um, especially when we're looking at the indigenous peoples of the United States and of Argentina, the, the last chapters in the book, I mean, by the time the American and Argentine state are doing this in the 1870s, these people, uh, their lifeways have been fundamentally uh, disrupted, not only because of the penetration of state power, but because of the changes to ecology that have come about with settler colonialism in the Americas and such. Slightly different story within many of the regions of the British Empire, because we don't have quite the, the ecological imperialism, to use the Crosby term, that we do in the Americas. But nonetheless, by the time these states formally reach into these spaces in the 1870s, um, many of these societies have already been under sustained pressure by state authorities. And often, you know, pressure is a polite way of saying um, pretty abhorrent forms of violence. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think you should uh, sell yourself short. Uh, indigenous voices come through quite a bit in this book, but the ethical concerns that you raise um are, are definitely valid. And I think they dog a lot of historians. Um, just to move on to another part of the book that you cover extensively, one of your theses is that this FCR blueprint, blueprint is um, replicated across a wide range of frontiers. So could you give us an example of that? And also maybe you could tie in the, uh, the figure of what you call the man on the spot. So somebody like Sandman, um, who seems to be in, uh, instrumental in the process of this re replication and subsequent implementation. You know, there's a tension about the, the frontier crimes regulation and its story, because on the one hand, 
um, as I, I hopefully made clear by now, um, the, these imperial constellations really lionize the idea of the rule of law. You know, they are they are moving away from the rule of of an autocrat and bringing the light of the rule of law. That's civilization in their minds, and often that law is most importantly defined with regards to property and property law. Um, but the paradox within the frontier crimes re uh, uh, regulation itself is that that rule of law is subject to the arbitrariness of the individual man on the spot, the frontier officer who, quote unquote, knows his people, right? And so that's why all of these laws, be it the frontier crimes regulation or the legal infrastructure that uh, Clum puts on place in place on the San Carlos reservation are actually quite, um, you know, they're, they're quite opaque and at best they're kind of more general principles than, than as it were, Blackstone letter law. Um, but what's interesting is that you have this legal architecture that, that creates a space for the so-called man on the spot to use Galbraith's uh, um, term. But um, these men on the spot move and they take the, the ideas with them. So, um, you know, how does that work out? Well, in the British imperial space, there's a number of these fantastic characters. Um, one that actually comes to mind, perhaps more important than, than Sandman, who I'll return to, is Henry Dobbs. So Henry Dobbs is a revenue official in Baluchistan uh, on the southern Afghan border, and he becomes the head of the revenue department of the Indian expeditionary force that invades Basra in 1914, in November of 1914. And so he's essentially uh, tasked with establishing forms of governance um, after the British Indian Expeditionary Force starts to conquer the Ottoman Vilayat of Basra. And you can see that what he does is looking over the marshlands of southern Basra, he's like, wait a minute, I've seen this before. Okay, it's marshlands instead of mountains, but this kind of tribal infrastructure and architecture these guys are just like the Baluchin Afghans that I'm used to. And so he actually promulgates um, a version of the Frontier Crimes Regulation, the Tribal Civil and Criminal Disputes Regulation in um, occupied Basra, which then becomes uh, a part of the law of, of Iraq. Um, uh, Lugard, Lord Lugard is another uh, great example. Lord Lugard, who of course is uh, most famous for uh, bringing indirect governance to uh, Africa. I mean, his his famous work is, you know, 1922, Our Dual Mandate in the Tropics. Um, and he's often thought about as, you know, br bringing that system uh, to uh, Africa writ large, right? Well, I mean, Lugard cuts his teeth administratively along the frontier in Peshawar, which is in the Afghan-Pakistani uh, frontier uh in the 1870s and, and 1880s it's his first posting as a subaltern actually and he spends about three to four years there right there at the time when the frontier crimes regulation is being applied for the first time so you can see resonances of that for lugard himself um and then uh in the case of argentina actually there's this really interesting guy um named Ignacio Fotheringham, um, who comes from an Anglo-Catholic family. His father had, in fact, been the aide-de-camp to Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo, and he had enlisted in the East India Company Navy, which he got drummed out of for reasons that are still a little bit unclear, but it seems he did something bad in a mosque in Basra about 1858. Um, and he ends up emigrating to Argentina in the early 1860s and becomes um, a really important player in the 
the uh, wars of conquest and consolidation in Argentina. And he wrote a really self-aggrandizing autobiography at the turn of the 20th century. And in it, it's in Spanish, it's called La Vida de un Soldado. Um, he, he actually compares how killing Mapuche on the Argentine Pampas reminded him and was very similar to uh, killing Afghans and Baluch along the Afghan frontier. So there's this, number one, this personal connection that goes on, which is really interesting. Um, and, and, and number two, then there's a learning connection that a lot of these guys, uh, you know, see um, similar problems. Maybe they read each other or they read about each other. I mean, the, the, the famous example to return to Sandeman, who comes up with this so-called Sandeman system along the Baluch frontier, is that um, I'm going to butcher his name, who I can't remember, but the French commander in Algeria and Morocco at the turn of the 20th century, um, actually is reading Sandeman. And he talks about how Sandeman influences his own counterinsurgency and governance doctrine uh, within the, the, the French areas. Um, it even comes into modern American counterinsurgency of all things, uh, that, that classic term hearts and minds. And I've written about this elsewhere. Um, you know, that that's so often used today, for instance, in American counterinsurgency doctrine. Well, that comes from Sandeman in a letter he wrote in 1891. And Sandeman actually has a very clear intellectual, but personal connection to the way that these ideas get transmitted from the northwest frontier of British India um, over into the American military establishment um, that, that continues actually to operate in those spaces today. So, you know, there, there's a story of, on the one hand, administrative replication, but there's also a story of um, imperial careering uh, writ large in a globalized 19th century world. So these guys move around and they exchange ideas and they exchange uh, um, practices. All right. And, and the, the sort of web of, of imperial diffusion is, is fascinating. Um, but I, there was something that came up in the book that I don't know if you want to say it cut against it, but it, it was just very intriguing, right? Because you talk about, um, you know, the, the Nepal in Southern Africa, and you talk about this guy, um, Theophilus Shepstone, who is, if I read it correctly, is sort of an analogous figure to Sandeman, but he's, he's working 25 years before. And as you mentioned, there are no known connections between them. So I wonder if despite all of these avenues of ideological diffusion, there's something sort of intrinsic about this kind of response to this particular problem that imperialism creates for itself over and over again. Yeah. And this goes right back to the earlier discussion we were having about ecological imperialism. Is this how you react when you're faced with a similar topography and, and you know, set of people inhabiting that? Yeah. Uh, Shepstone's a really interesting character. He's the father and, and, author of the Natal Code, the Natal Code, which comes in the 1870s. And as you rightly point out, um, I, I was not able to see any connection between Shepstone and British India. In fact, Shepstone is born and has the entirety of his career in uh, the Natal colony. Um, the one personal connection is that he is closely linked with uh, Sir Bartle Freer, who becomes the, the High Commissioner for Natal and the Cape Colony at the end of the 1870s, but the Natal Code actually comes before that. I mean, the other character is, to return to Arizona is John Klum, because Klum, as far as I can tell, 
has no connection to British imperialism, um, ha- doesn't reference uh, the writings of Sandman or anything like that. And um, this is actually a, a moment where all three of these guys, Shepstone, Plum, and, uh, and, and Sandman, on different sides of the world from one another, and largely working in ignorance of each other. They don't know of one another's existence in the 1870s. Nonetheless, come up with roughly the same uh, the same blueprint of administration. They're doing the same things. They come up with these kind of encapsulative uh, models of administration where these uh, indigenous peoples are supposed to be ruled by their own customs and tradition, where these people are supposed to police themselves and where they are supposed to be integrated as economically dependent on the wider economy they're embedded in. So yeah, which in a way, you're right, it does cut across um, a current of argument in the book about these imperial careers of people, but also of laws. But I also think um, this is a statement about the modern state as it's coming into existence at the end of the 19th century. This is a bureaucratic way of thinking and reacting. It clearly, as we talked about earlier, has imperial antecedents that can go back to antiquity. Um, but nonetheless, um, it, it, it has a logic to it, a bureaucratic logic that is largely independent of the communication these people might have had between one another. And I would say, uh, just to finish this off, um, I know there are further avenues of exploration uh, of this point that I, I just was not able to fo- uh, follow up because of both time and, and expertise. But for instance, I remember talking to a colleague, Andres Rodriguez, who's at the University of Sydney and works on Yunnan province uh, in southern China during the Repu- Republican era. And I was describing to him uh you know, the book and what I was arguing and stuff. And he's like, that sounds exactly what the Chinese Republican forces were doing to um, ethnic minorities along the the frontier and boundary in Yunnan. And it took us about three minutes to figure out a clear chain of transmission. And that chain of transmission of this knowledge was the YMCA, because the YMCA had been charged with the um, American reservations in the Southwest from the late 19th century, and then they go and help the Republican authorities in China in the 1920s. So, you know, there's a broader story that I think will resonate elsewhere in the world that I just wasn't able to get to. Yeah, and 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 I guess to to take a step back a little bit, when you when you look at all this and how complex it is and how, how much time and resources it took, you have to wonder, right, like why they even bothered at all with these places. And and one answer, as you said, comes from ideology. The other is the sort of fear of strategic encroachment by other great powers. But, you know, when we talk about imperial logic, to what extent do you think that there's just sort of a self-propulsion that is inherent in the project of imperialism that is sort of controlling these actors rather than controlled by them? I, I think to a large extent. Um, and I wouldn't just limit it to uh, an inherent logic of imperialism, an expansionary logic, but I'd also say that there's a particular logic to the bureaucratic state that's born in the mid-19th century and that is really you know, taking, taking root across the globe at this point in time, where you have bureaucratization, a move towards standard operating procedures, an attempt to rein in the man on the spot 
and and limit um, their their autonomy by the rule of law, um, for for sure. Um, one of the other interesting things is all the places that uh, I look at, so the British Indian frontier, the southern Iraq, uh, in, in the British man mandates of um, the Middle East, the Kenyan-Somali border, northern Nigeria, the U.S.-Mexican border, and the Argentine uh, pampas, is these all do have a, a logic of imperial competition as well, or at the very least state competition, because these are all located on what today, located on or near what today are um, international boundaries. And there's a really interesting episode that uh, comes out of the Argentine case, um, because I remember I was looking in Argentina, I was doing my, my research in the Archivo General de la Nación in, in Buenos Aires, and I was looking through the private papers of the key architects of the conquest of the desert, this guy named Julio Roca. And what's really interesting was I'm going through his papers, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I stumble on this uh, set of documents that were translations of, uh, they were handwritten, so I couldn't quite ascertain exactly where they were from, but I'm pretty sure they were translations of news reports from the Times of London about the Second Anglo-Afghan War which is going on at the exact same time. This is another thing. All these examples, with a couple of exceptions, are going on in a very compressed set of time. They're going on basically in the 1870s up through 1885. Um, but uh, Roca has had all of the uh, uh, dispatches about the Second Anglo-Afghan War translated into Spanish. Um, and basically, he writes a, a covering note on these translations. And it basically says, see, see, we are doing on the Pampas vis-a-vis -vis Chile exactly what the British are doing in Afghanistan vis-a-vis -vis Russia, which is namely, you know, this is this buffer space that the anarchy of that space invites competition from our arch enemies, our imperial rivals. And so we are intervening on the pompous now. We're conquering the desert so Chile doesn't do it against us, just as the British at this very same moment are doing that uh, in Afghanistan. And just as we see, because the San Carlos Apache uh, in Arizona are the very last of the Indian wars of the latter half of the 19th century, you know, one of the concerns going on is American angst about the border with Mexico and securing that. So there is a, a definite imperial and statal logic um, to all of these uh, episodes. Yeah, well, I mean, it's fascinating and there's there's so much more we could talk about, but maybe just to close this out, could you talk a little bit about the legacies of this practice today and, um, you know, in, in general, but also specifically, I found something that was maybe a little bit of a paradox, right? Because you, at least, it seems to me, present these spaces as having a, a uniquely destabilized and, and violent legacy. And if that's the case, it's somewhat paradoxical because these are ostensibly the places where the imperial footprint was most attenuated. But on the other hand, it seems like their legacy is the most destructive. So I found that extremely intriguing. So I start the book actually where I end the book, and that is with a series of um, 
of violent episodes uh, from the mid 2000 teens. Um, the uh, public school attack in Peshawar, uh, which leaves 140 plus people dead, 130 being school children. The attack on Garissa University, um, at, at, which happens within a matter of months and leaves about 130 largely students dead. And the abduction of um, the Chibok schoolgirls um, in northern Nigeria. Um, and, and I actually start the book on the first page with those episodes and say, you know, that they are tied together today in the popular imagination by the logic of terrorism. But the argument I want to make is that these these are all tied up to this um, the, their place on the frontier and the lasting legacy on the frontier. And I think the number one issue of the lasting legacy is violence, whether it be actual physical violence, as is demonstrated in those three episodes, or what you know we as scholars might talk about as epistemic violence, the, the violence of definition of papers. A, a great example of the epistemic violence um, is with the San Carlos Reservation. So San Carlos today is, I believe, the second poorest reservation in the United States. It's also the largest reservation, but second poorest after Pine Ridge. Um, you know, all the indices are, are pretty atrocious. Um, but there was a really interesting uh, episode with the San Carlos Reservation, which happened recently, which is that uh, there is the contiguous reservation, and then there's some parts of the reservation that are actually in a national forest right next to the reservation that the Eisenhower administration had, had ensured were included in the reservation. Well, the mining conglomerate Rio Tinto has discovered the largest unexploited reserve of copper in the world lies underneath this part of the reservation. It's called Oak Flat. And Rio Tinto went to the San Carlos Apache and tried to negotiate a land swap. But because the land has uh, religious value and a religious significance, the San Carlos said no. Um, and anyway, push came to shove and it eventually was forced through as a writer to the defense bill uh, written in by the then senior senator from Arizona, John McCain, right? So this is the example, not of the physical violence of, uh, that we see in Peshawar, for instance, um, but definitely the epistemic violence where the U.S. government, for all its talk of tribal sovereignty and stuff, when it doesn't get its way, it's going to force their hand and force that subjugation. And I think all of these places remain impoverished. They remain um, largely second-class citizens. I mean, the, the tribesmen of the FATA or federally administered tribal areas weren't actually considered Pakistani citizens until after 2001. And it was only in 2018, we have a constitutional amendment that, uh, that, that disestablishes the federally administered tribal agencies. That hasn't happened in practice yet, but legally disestablishes them. So these people r really remain subject to different regimes uh, of violence within these spaces. Um, and I think that is the lasting legacy. It's, it's a legacy of violence. It's a legacy of impoverishment. Um, and it's a legacy of encapsulation that these people are still dealing with today. Well, the book is Ruling the Savage Periphery. Frontier Governance and the Making of the Modern State. It is phenomenal. I urge everyone to pick up a copy. Dr. Benjamin Hopkins, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Jonathan.